Hey, Mama, I'm so glad you're back. Can you believe that part one of my interview with Dr. Stu Fishbein was just the introduction? I mean, with all of that goodness, we were just getting started. So today, we're going to talk about epidurals. We're going to talk about the hormones of labor, including oxytocin, and how its role can be altered by the use of synthetic Pitocin. That's the stuff they put in your IV at the hospital. We're going to talk about Dr. Michelle O'Dont's theory about the impact of pre-labor cesareans on baby girls. Y'all, this episode is packed, so let's not waste any more time. Are you a Christian woman yearning for a beautiful, joyful pregnancy and birth with a focus on God, not medical tests? Are you worried the birth you want isn't possible and you're tired of being treated like an accident waiting to happen? Hey mama, I'm Lori, host of Your Birth, God's Way. I'm a certified nurse midwife now, but I wasn't always. After working for nearly 20 years in the broken maternity system, I too was in your shoes wondering how I could have the birth I wanted and that I felt God meant for me to have. I found a secret that has actually been known since the beginning of time. God's way is the best way. Spoiler alert, God made us and our babies and he knows us best. He designed us perfectly for pregnancy, birth, and nourishing our babies after birth if we work with his design and not against it. In this podcast, you'll learn how to be healthy and have joy during this time of life that will be over before you know it. So if you're ready to reclaim your birth and your babies for his glory, go turn on a few episodes of Bluey for that little one on your hip so you can put the focus back on you for a few minutes with me. So if you missed part one, here is the part where I tell you that you really need to go listen to that part first, because it's just awkward to come into the middle of a conversation, right? So push stop, pause on this one, stop, whatever, go get caught up on that one. And we will be waiting right here for you when you get back. Okay, now that everybody's back, let's dive in to part two of this epic interview with Dr. Stu. already know the answer they'll email me and they and, and I think you've said this too you already knew the answer you just needed me to tell you that you knew the answer you doubted yeah. yourself yeah we have a very smart audience and you know I know that they want to trust their doctors and we want to trust the medical system but the medical system has proven over and over again that it's untrustworthy and and if you take a deeper dive into a lot of books about the history of medicine you're going to find that they've been wrong a lot about really major stuff for a long time. For, you know, well, for a hundred years. And I mean, that's as much as far back as usually the history will go. But, you know, obviously, well, they were, you know, I mean, look what they did to Semmelweis. If people don't know who Semmelweis was, Ignaz Semmelweis was a, um, he was an obstetrician. I don't know, was it 18th century or was it 16th century? I think it was 18th century. I think it was 18th, yeah. Yeah. And he was in Austria and he decided that a lot of women, too many women were dying in childbirth from uh, purple sepsis, which means postpartum or interpartum fever and infection. And that's when the days when doctors were coming from the cadaver lab and then coming to catch babies. And there was no such thing as latex gloves. And they didn't know a germ theory. They didn't know about bacteria. So they would just go and then, you know, their hands would be completely filthy or dirty. And, and all he did was start washing his hands between the lab and seeing his patients and between one patient and the other patient. And his purple sepsis rate fell almost to, you know, really, really far down. And his colleagues called him crazy and eventually lured him into a insane asylum where he died. Uh, I think he was uh, tortured or, or whatever, but he died in, a, in an insane asylum. You know, only again, once again, he was right. He's a perfect example of what generally happens to people who are pioneers like Galileo. 
or um, Peter McCullough in our current day. Peter McCullough is a cardiologist who's speaking out bravely um, and honestly about what he's seen and what he knows about the COVID vaccine. So, um, but they they get crucified by the people in power because they upset the apple cart. Um, yeah, the pioneers by the ones with the arrows in their back. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. So it kind of branching off of, of what we've already started to kind of dabble into, I'd, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about um, how, you know, we, we've acknowledged the fact that epidurals have a place. Like sometimes, you know, they're, you're exhausted and your labor has stalled because you're, you're fighting your body at this point. We've acknowledged that. But, but pulling back to where we were discussing how, routine interventions are applied kind of across the board and they're sold as being relatively or maybe completely harmless. They're not ever fully, um, moms are not given full informed consent. I'd love for you to talk about what you've learned about epidurals and not just so much of, you know, cause I think sometimes people think that we're just being cruel by telling you that you can labor without an epidural and that you shouldn't have an epidural. And, but what we're ignoring is this um, natural physiological process that we're interrupting by not allowing this hormonal symphony really of all these different hormones and the roles that they play and what you've learned about that and the disconnect that happens between moms and babies when that epidural starts. Okay. Well, let's, let's go back for a second, just, just to re reinforce what you said that epidurals can be a godsend. And I've seen many women who struggled and struggled at home, go in and get an epidural and an hour later, they're complete and ready to push because they've just been so sore. So epidurals are not the devil. But the mindless use of them and the overuse of them is a problem because I wrote a paper once called, I wrote a, a paper called, I called it labor is not a toothache because um, I'd heard obese people, w patients had told me that their OB had said this to them that, well, you wouldn't have your tooth drilled without lidocaine or Novocaine, would you? And of course not. Why would you? Because that pain is just pain, but labor pain is different because it serves a purpose. And two things. First of all, when we use the word pain, we're sort of pigeonholing the whole idea that this process where uterine contractions happening uh, is painful. And sometimes pain tells us there's something wrong. Like if you touch a hot stove, okay, you know to pull your arm back because you feel pain. If you were numb, you'd burn the crap out of your finger. And what you need to know is something called the gate theory of pain. And, and pain is a signal. And how do, we, how do we deal with pain? Well, when we burn our finger, what's the first thing we tend to do? We tend to run it under cold water. We tend to put it in our mouth or we over. And, and that doesn't make the burn less, doesn't make the injury any less, but it makes the pain less. And the way that works is because the pain, when you burn your finger, there's a, there's a mapping on the opposite side of your body in your brain called the homunculus, and it does, um, it's, there's a little area in your brain that's going, ouch, 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 ouch. The minute that you start running it under cold water or putting it in your mouth, all the other nerve endings around that burn are starting to fire, and your brain can no longer pick out the specific spot. And so it feels better. Same thing when you bump your elbow. One of the first things you do when you bump your elbow is you rub your elbow, right? That makes it feel better, but it's not necessarily decreasing the injury. It just makes it feel better. 
So this is important because in the medical model, you go to the hospital and you're asked to sort of lay in a bed with the belts on. And I'm putting one of the most extreme examples. Sometimes they let you move and stuff like that, but most of the time they, you're limited in what you can do. And so you're having these, this discomfort and you can't move and you can't shift your body and you can't lift a leg up and you can't get rebozoed and you can't get your hips squeezed and you can't get massaged. So what do you ask for? You ask for pain medicine. But the pain sometimes is telling you that the baby needs you to move because the baby's hung up on something. And so if you watch it, like you have and I have in the home setting where they're free to do whatever they want to do, you'll see them rocking. You'll see them moving. They'll see them lift a leg up. They'll see them squat. They'll see them, you know, get on all four. They'll change positions, which is helping their baby. It's because they work in concert with their baby to help their baby come out. And their baby sends them signals by pushing on things and whatever in your body. And some women obviously perceive pain worse than others. But nonetheless, be a better word. A lot of you guys call it surges or waves. It's better to think of it that way because waves are something that we all sort of enjoy. You know, the waves come and then they go. And then they come and then they go. And it comes and goes. So it's not the same kind of pain as burning your finger or something else where it's sort of constant. Um, so your question back. Now, so that's the whole point about. Uh, if, if you, you can avoid an epidural if you were free to move about. And especially the best thing that you can do for that is get in water, which a lot of hospitals won't let you do. So for a lot of laboring women, what we tell them to do is go to the bathroom, get in the shower, and don't come out. The hospital has endless hot water, and you can stay in there, and they're, never, they're not going to make you get out of the shower. So um, assuming that you get an epidural at the hospital and these high rates of epidurals, it's because my colleagues think that epidural is like no, uh, like uh, Novocaine for your tooth. It's just taking away the pain. And why would you want to have pain when you're in labor? But I just told you some of the benefits of the pain in labor. And again, it could go back to the basic question. If you believe in evolution, why is labor even painful? Because you'd think over time in the wild, of a mammal that is in pain is going to moan or cry out. Now, they've learned to be quiet. You don't really hear uh, mammals laying, but they do have pain, right? So they're not crying out. They're not getting eaten by a predator, but they're still in pain. So maybe nature is wise, and maybe there's a reason that a, a contraction hurts. And here's a theory that I've proposed, and, and I got this a lot from my friend Alex Evangeliti, who's a, a midwife in L.A. She started me out on this path of thinking like this. Uh is that um, when you have a discomfort, your 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 hormones you sit, you secrete some hormones, and the most I can there's a lot of them, but the most common the most the four that you secrete more, most commonly would be adrenaline when you have pain, cortisol, endorphins which are your own body's opiates, and of course you're making oxytocin during that time because you're contracting. So you're making these four hormones, and every time you have a surge, your body puts out adrenaline. What does adrenaline do? Adrenaline prepares you, uh, your body for, for any sort of uh, event, but it also spaces out contractions. So uh, it's, it's fight or flight, which we all know, but it's also, it spaces out contractions because a mammal that needs to get up and run from a predator is, is got to stop contracting so she can save herself and that way ensure the best chance of survival for her offspring. All right, so you have adrenaline. You put out um, cortisol. Cortisol helps you deal with stress. Your body puts out endorphins, which are the great, great because it's your body's own opioid-type compounds. And, of course, you're putting out oxytocin, 
which again, not only does it make your uterus contract, but it gives you feelings of warmth and love. And it also does milk let down and other things like that, which are not relevant at that time, but it's an amazing hormone. It does all those things. So every time you have a contraction, you put out those things uh, and they make you feel better. But when you're in labor, you're not the only person that's in labor. Your baby's world is changing. Your baby has never experienced anything like he's experiencing before. Your baby's suddenly getting squeezed and, you, and your placenta is being squeezed during a contraction. Maybe there's decreased perfusion and your baby's realizing that, hey, my O2 sat is dropping or my, yeah, I'm not getting glucose for this 30 seconds or 60 seconds or whatever. So something's changing physiologically in the baby and the baby's undergoing some stress. And then the water breaks and now the baby's really getting squeezed. And then the head's it's coming through the vagina or the butt's coming through the vagina or whatever. And it's really getting squeezed and it's, and it's uncomfortable. But every, every couple of minutes, it gets a waft of mom's adrenaline, cortisol, endorphins, and oxytocin. So every couple of minutes, it goes, mom's adrenaline, what is mom? Oh, that, that's, that's telling me that mom's there and that uh, it's okay and that the contractions are going to slow down. Mom's cortisol helps baby because it crosses these all cross the placenta. Endorphins, obviously, the baby's getting mom's endorphins. This has been going on, by the way, for nine months. When you're happy... You know, at four months pregnant and you're happy and laughing, your baby's happy because your baby's getting the good hormones. And when you're stressed, you're secreting, you know, cortisol and adrenaline and some other stress hormones. And that's not good. So, you know, I tell pregnant women, don't watch horror movies. Don't uh, don't watch the news um, because you want to bathe your baby throughout the entire pregnancy as much as possible in happy hormones. So and then, of course, the most important one is oxytocin. Because you're putting out surges of oxytocin every couple minutes that cause your uterus to, to contract. And those are crossing the placenta. And the baby is sensing love and warmth and affection because that's how oxytocin works. And it may be doing other things to the baby, but just for my example, we'll limit it to that. So baby's knowing that, and I, and I, I sort of, this is emotional, but I feel like the baby's saying when it gets a waft of mom's oxytocin, it's saying there's mom. Mom's here. And so now you get an epidural and you're having no discomfort anymore, but every three minutes or maybe even closer together because your contractions initially space out and then they have to start, they start Pitocin because that's what they do. So now mom's not even secreting oxytocin anymore or far less. And the baby's not getting adrenaline. The baby's not getting mom's cortisol. The baby's not getting mom's endorphins because mom's not having any pain, but the baby's world is still changing. And so the baby is now cut off from mom. And if you worked in a hospital like you and I have, you've seen this, that after a woman gets an epidural, uh, there may be a little hypotensive episode. And they may have a little D-cell about 20 minutes later, but that'll resolve. But you'll gradually, if the labor is a long labor, you'll gradually see the baby begin to not tolerate labor anymore and get into that gray area, what we call category two tracings, where the tracing gets a little flatter. There's less accelerations. The fetal heart rate baseline begins to rise. And then... You're not dilated fast enough and or they or the baby's in trouble. They have to turn off the pit for a while. And then you're stuck in this whole wheel that probably never would have happened if you hadn't got the epidural in the first place. So I want women to get full informed consent when they get an epidural, that it's not just taking away pain like a toothache, that there's more to it than that, that nature designed this process of labor to be uncomfortable, not just because Eve ate from the tree. All right. Not, not because of that. Um, I mean, you can believe that and that's fine. And that's a really 
for your for your audience that's you know a very reasonable explanation but why did the sheep and goats and stuff have to suffer too <laughs> okay so yeah. labor is labor is painful and we know it's painful because they've done studies on sheep where they they check adrenaline levels and things like that and they can see that the even though the sheep isn't crying out you can they they know that it's uncomfortable for them so it's uncomfortable in all mammals and so when you start to interfere with mother nature there's going to be downstream consequences and one of those is going to be that the baby's going to not have the support and the other is going to be the baby's not exposed all that all those hours for to oxytocin which could lead us into the uh, another question that you had about the difference between pitocin and oxytocin right um but oxytocin you know uh you mentioned uh, earlier t- to me privately you mentioned Michelle O'Don and Michelle O'Don is one of my mentors as well he was in the business of being born and um i've heard him speak a couple of on a couple of occasions and he talks about the, rel- the 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 value of oxytocin and being exposed to oxytocin and he thinks that the real problem for future generations is going to be babies girls that were born to moms who had pre-labor cesarean sections in other words planned cesarean section he calls them pre-labor um because they never got exposed to mom's oxytocin hmm. they never had that give and take even the moms who end up with a C-section after being in labor for a while, those babies are, he thinks they do better than babies. Or there, There's a microbiome issue with them. That's different. But he thinks there's other issues that may lead to other problems. And again, these are all theories. It's hard to prove. And of course, nobody in academic medicine is looking at them. They don't want to know. But you should know. You should look at, should do a study. Just like you should have done in the in the vaccine industry, you should have looked at studies at the outcomes of of children who had no vaccines ever and children who, who took the whole vaccine schedule and looked at them. And that's what the book Vax on Vax does the, by Robert Kennedy Jr. and um, Brian Hooker. It's the same thing here. Wouldn't you like to know how what's the outcome of babies at 10 years of age in moms who had a completely unmedicated birth versus moms who had a medicated birth? Versus moms who had a vaginal birth versus moms who had a cesarean birth. Now, we know a little bit about that from the microbiome studies, but nobody in academia is looking into that. Because, again, I think they're a little bit obtuse and they consider that their model is the only model. And why would we want? We're not going to change it anyway. So why do we want to know? They don't want to know. They, they, they like it like it is, I think. Well, the people that run the system like it, like it is. I don't think that the doctors working in the system or the nurses working in the system and certainly the patients in the system are really happy about it. That's true. I don't, I don't, I mean, again, we all live our lives and we compartmentalize things, but how, when you're working in a labor and delivery unit, how many really happy people do you see? They're and why, and if you, and if you see a nurse they have or, far too many people to safely care for and they know it, they know that right. they safely care for them. And that, you know, if, when you hear the stories about how, how a doctor or a nurse mistreated a patient, happy people don't do that. Yeah. Unhappy people do that. Yeah. People that are stressed, they take it out on, on, um, on whoever they could take it out on. Usually somebody of lesser, you know, stature. So the boss yells at the secretary, yells at the janitor. I mean, this is, the, you know, it's, it's the way it works. And it, it doesn't have to be that way. Right. I mean, birth can be a very stressful process, even for a home birth midwife. 
you know, I know, <clears throat> I mean, because I spent 12 years doing it, that even though you have great faith in, in nature's design, you still have that little uh, anxiety inside of you that, you, of course, you're really good at hiding um, when you're at the house with the, with the mom. But um, you don't, it doesn't beat on you. But when you're stressed out, you, you say things, you do things, and you don't think outside of your box because all you want to do is get through your shift or your day and, and sign out and get out. And that's not a great thing. When I, I, I know that I'm speaking about myself, but um, I didn't care if a day was, if, if it was Monday or, or Friday when I went to my office because I liked going to my office. I had fun at work. And I gave the women, I, because I practiced the, in the last 30, 25 years of my practice, the midwifery model where I saw an OB visit once every hour or sometimes maybe once every 30 minutes, but certainly not once every eight minutes, that sort of thing. So I had time to chat and to talk and to, to get to know the patients that we call clients because they're not sick. Um, and patients is a, is a, it's a disempowering word. It, is. it gets back. It gets back to why do why does a pregnant woman coming to the hospital have to go into the bathroom and pee in a cup, and change into a hospital gown? Why? Why can't she wear her own jammies? Why can't she wear nothing? Why can't she? And why are you making her pee in a cup? Um, well, you're making her pee in a cup because you can send it to the lab and you can charge for a urinalysis, <laughs> or you might want to do a drug screen against her wishes or without permission or whatever. But Everything that they do with that urine, they make money off of. But there's no reason to check a urine on a pregnant woman coming in who's got no urinary complaints. Now, if your blood pressure's up and you want to check it for protein, that's one thing. Right. But they, they often make you pee in a cup before they even check your blood pressure. Right. Yep. So, so again, it's, they're not, they don't think because, and I know this because I did this stuff yep. for years. So... You know, why I woke up and other people didn't, I, I, I have no idea. I don't know. I mean, I was always a curious kid. I was always an annoying kid <laughs> who asked questions. I was, you know, asking questions of why, why, why. Right. You, you know, those of you with little children, you understand they sometimes they're trying to figure stuff out. They keep it. And eventually you get so exasperated, you say something stupid, like, because I said so. <laughs> and that's sort of what the doctors say. The doctors won't say because I said so, but they'll say that's our hospital policy. Right. It's the same thing. That's because I said so. Yes, I said so. Right. So there's no difference between saying because I said so and oh, we're doing it because it's hospital policy. All right. That's just it's it's the same different words for the same meaning. Yeah. And it's even or um, even the like your orders. Um, I'm assuming they had already started this by the time you moved into the home setting. But, you know, like when I would admit people as a midwife, because I had hospital privileges and when I would admit people, I would just click boxes. And if I actually wrote something that was a, apart from the standard orders, it just threw their whole apple cart. You know, they, they were completely thrown off because it wasn't part of the protocol. It wasn't part of the algorithm. And they then had to go into thinking. And they had to manually enter it too. And they had to manually enter it. And, and, um, and, and it just throws everything off for, you know, they're like, if you, if you told them to check vitals less often, then they feel like that they're going to like kill the patient because you told them that, and, and it's, it's just simple stuff, but you're trying to give them more freedom, more movement, whatever, you know, let them get off the monitor for 30 minutes and go take a shower. <gasps> Do what? You know, and it, and it, 
their brains just couldn't go there because they're so used to the, and when I say they, remember that was me too. I was the nurse that was like, why would we do this? You're, this is awful. You're trying to kill them, you know? So I've seen both sides of it and it's just this block. It's like, they just can't get there. It's not because they're malicious. They, they truly believe they're doing the best thing, but they've been misled as, as to what the best thing is. And go ahead. Yeah. yeah I was going to just say like, like taking a blood pressure. All right. Hospitals will have a policy that probably in labor before you have an epidural, probably have to have your blood pressure taken every couple hours and you have to be, you can't be off the monitor. Think about this for a second. The woman's been laboring at home for hours. She comes to the hospital. Now she has to be monitored continuously. Mm-hmm. How come the baby didn't like go off the rails at home? Right. And a blood pressure, if a woman comes in with a blood pressure and it's 110 over 68, how often without any meddling whatsoever, does that blood pressure actually become pathologic during labor? Exactly. I would say just about never. Maybe after maybe a postpartum hemorrhage, she could, or if she gets an epidural, it might drop. But she's not going to suddenly have blood pressures of 160 over 110. Right. But yet, if she's in the throes of deep labor and it's been two hours, then they have to take her blood pressure. Now, she may even have that thing on her arm the whole time, and it just automatically pumps up. I was and about to say that because she could be in the middle of a contraction or in the middle of coping, and all of a sudden her arm starts to get squeezed, and her head, her brain goes there. She has Now, now she's course. broken from the co- coping mechanisms into... Why is my arm getting squeezed? Protocol dictated procedures that, that have no basis in anything. Right. Um, they don't. If she's symptomatic, if she's saying, I've got a headache, okay, check her blood pressure. Right. But if she comes in with a normal blood pressure and she's just in labor, but they can't, they can't not do it because, because it's hospital policy. Because they said so. <laughs> That's why. You know, women, women have babies at home without ever having any blood drawn. How is that possible? Because at the hospital, they come in, the first thing they do is they have to draw your blood. And, and they, you know, they can't draw. Well, first thing, they got to get you admitted because you can't draw your blood until you have a wristband. <laughs> uh, but then they draw your blood and they have to send a hemoglobin off. And why, why do they need that? Well, just in case. Why do they send a clot to the uh, blood bank? Well, just in case. But they can get blood for you if you need it. And how often does a woman really need an immediate emergent transfusion where they don't have time to do a type and cross. All right. Very, very rarely. And, you uh, know, and they handle it perfectly well. If somebody comes in with a car accident or a gunshot wound, they handle those people and give, if they have to give them blood, they give them more negative blood. But every woman has to have a needle stuck in her arm while she's contracting generally, or even if she's coming in for an induction. Um, why now, if they're going to get an epidural and they want to know a platelet count, that makes sense. But, they do it all because, again, because it's an RVS code for that, and they can. There's bills for that because they don't need it. In 95 percent of women or more, don't need to know what their hemoglobin was or what they have a blood clot go to the uh, blood bank because we're able to do that at home without ever drawing any blood. But they don't. But again, it, it's automated because it's from the moment you start your first day of medical school. You get indoctrinated into that way of that medicalized way of thinking. And they treat pregnancy the same questionnaire, the same admission process that they do if you're coming in to have gallbladder surgery. It's all considered a medical problem. It's all how they're thought they think. And when you think it's a medical problem, then of course you're going to want to medicalize it because you want to treat it. But most pregnancies don't need treatment. They just need patients. And they need to uh, understanding of the reverence 
of the process that's going on and let it play out like it's done for eons and only step in when there's an issue or a problem. And of course, now then that gets to the definition of what's a problem. And of course, as I said earlier in our talk, the medical model sees pretty much everything as a problem. Like you're over 35. Everything changes because you turn 35. That's, that's a stupid number. It doesn't mean anything. And the risks that rise as you get older, which they do for all diseases, okay, right. um, is so minimally small. But it doesn't matter because they use what's called relative risk. They don't use actual risk. Relative right. risk means that something may be twice as risky, but it's still one in a million. Right. So if you don't know the denominator, you don't know how to assess risk. And for whatever reason, these are very bright people that go to medical school. But somehow the brightness gets pounded out of them and they become sort of automated and do these things routinely. Partly because they're afraid not to, because as you said earlier, if you're a nurse and tries to do something different, you're going to, you might get chewed out for that. Or you might, you know, you're going to upset the apple cart, I think you said, or something like that. So, yeah. So there you have it. I think too, I think they assume the best of what they're being taught. Kind of like I said, you know, well, why do we do epidurals for everybody? Well, I guess that's the best because that's what we do. And I think that, you know, you go in with an honest heart and good intentions wanting to help people. And so you just assume that what you're being told is actually for their good. And you never think past, is this actually for their good? And I think I really think that's what it is, because I don't think anybody goes into it like, hey, I'm going to get over on these people or I'm going to give them an epidural they don't need. You know, it doesn't start there. It's this slow process. Like I said, I mean, nobody goes into being a doctor because they hate people. They want to help. They want to. And nobody goes into being an obstetrician because, you know, they they want to make labor hard. But then they just fall into this, um, you know, the routines and, and the trust that well, they wouldn't tell me to do this if this what if this wasn't the best way. Right. And the other thing, too, that you just said is they, they go in to try to make their patients better. Right. And one of the things that's hard to watch as any human being is to watch someone in pain. So it's natural for the nurses to make the suggestion. The doctors don't care because doctors are they're not even there. They're at their office or they're at home. Yeah. And or in most of labor, they come, you know, unless they're uh, even the hospitalist or the laborist isn't isn't going from room to room to room. The nurses are and they're seeing a woman and it's hard watching someone who's really struggling. And instead of giving, telling them that they should have an epidural, which I under, is understandable, because then it's easier for the nurse to take care of them once they have an epidural. Um, but they should they should. That's why that's why mom should have doulas. Because they should allow them to do other things that, that, like we talked about earlier, that help them cope with the discomfort. But when, you, when you're stuck on a monitor and you're stuck in a bed, you know, we were never meant to labor in a bed. That happened starting in about the 1920s or maybe, you know, I don't know, they were birthing, you know, there's pictures of like French kings looking at women. Say, it sitting was one in of birth, the kings. It was, I think, one the of birth, the King Henry's. Louis the something, the 16th yeah. or something, I don't remember. Yeah. But, but, you know, the woman was in a birthing chair. She wasn't in a bed because they knew then that women birthed upright. Yeah. Generally squatting. He wanted to see the baby born. So he was like, Hey, if you laid down, I could see. And then from there on the doctors were like, Hey, that was easier. You know, it wasn't about the women anymore. Oh, it hasn't been for a really long time. That is a lot to digest. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to take a break. 
We're going to digest all that Dr. Stu has poured into us, and then we're going to get ready for the finale that will be posted first thing tomorrow morning. So go set your reminders and your notifications and your follows and whatever else you need to make sure that you don't forget. And I'll see you right back here tomorrow. Real quick, if today's episode blessed you in any way, would you head over to Apple Podcasts and leave me a quick five-star written review? It'll take you less than a minute, but it's the best thank you you can give me. And it will help my show to reach more mamas just like you so we can all find God's best for our families. I'll see you right back here in a few days.